Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach our heart to rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, music has always been the best way to tell stories, especially in a time and place where many couldn't read or write. Did you know that in 1500, the literacy rate in Germany was 11%? Think about that. Only 11% of the people could read and write. By the way, in what would become the United States in 1776, it was only 60%. I'm always amazed, though, at school students who can't remember what they read just five minutes ago, but they can remember the lyrics to every song they have ever heard. You know, I don't know why, but there are times when I'm sitting at my desk, or maybe I'm driving or cleaning the church, and suddenly there's this song in my head. Now, I didn't ask for that song. It's like somebody walked into my head, put a quarter in the jukebox. By the way, for those of you who don't know what a jukebox is, ask your parents or grandparents, and suddenly there it is. That song, and by the way, I can't get it out of my head no matter how hard I try, and it stays in my head until it disappears just as suddenly as it arrived. There are moments when I am desperately trying to remember a song that was my absolute favorite in 1968 or maybe 1973, and I can remember just a few words or just parts of the melody, and I walk around humming or singing those words or, or melody until the whole song comes back into my mind. There's so much of our life that we remember by the music that accompanied those moments in time. What songs did you love to sing with your friends when you were a kid? What song did you crank all the way up in the car when you were alone? What song did you sing or listen to when your heart was broken and you wanted to be alone? Which one did you choose for your first dance at your wedding? Or maybe the daddy-daughter dance? I should tell you, there's some controversy about the angels and the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. You see, at every Christmas program, the kids are always singing, glory to God in the highest. But the word, the Greek word is lego, and it means said, not sung. And theologians, who have nothing better to do, have argued for centuries about whether the angels were singing or speaking in a chorus. Now, we know angels can sing. And I actually found a verse that, that gives us hope that they were actually singing in, in Luke chapter 2. See, in Revelation, it says, The angels sang a new song, saying. Did you hear that? The angels sang a new song, saying. And that's where we get the second meaning of Lego, which is to proclaim. And it might be singing, it might be saying, it might be a poem. There's all sorts of ways to Lego. But I am a little concerned about St. John. A little later, when he's talking about the angels singing that, that he was mentioning just a moment ago in the book of Revelation, he says, I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was also like harpists playing on their harps. Harps, cascading water, thunder. That's how he describes the angels singing. It's a rather interesting choir, which begs the question, what does angel singing sound like? And what did the shepherds hear? Shepherds were out in the wilderness for long stretches at a time. Now, they didn't have cell phones or the Internet to entertain them. And when you read the story of King David, you get a little bit of insight into how those shepherds passed their time. Um, he spent long periods learning to play instruments and composing psalms and songs. By the way, his first non-shepherd job was to play his harp, which would quiet the soul of King Saul. And if you remember, when he volunteered to fight Goliath and was told, hey, you know, there's no way that you can fight, um, he said, and I quote to King Saul, 
Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And I don't doubt, by the way, that David had an awful lot of songs about his personal exploits that he would have been happy to sing for you if you asked, or maybe even if you didn't ask. Now, this may be why God gave shepherds first dibs on both experiencing and then telling the story of Jesus to the world. Well, okay, maybe not the world, but at least to the town of Bethlehem, to Mary and Joseph, and to their sheep. When the angel shows up and declares, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger, they immediately took off to go see the baby. Now, it, it doesn't say whether they left the 99 sheep behind in order to go find the one, Jesus, uh, or if they took all the sheep with them. I mean, after all, they were going to see the Lamb of God and the Good Shepherd, so I don't think either Jesus or the sheep would have minded a, a little field trip. Ovid, by the way, was the best-known Roman poet at the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, Livy, the greatest historian of his generation. Augustus Caesar, believe it or not, was well-known for his stories and his poems. I don't know if he had a ghostwriter or whether it was actually him writing, but he's actually written some pretty amazing stuff. And yet God didn't choose any of them to tell the story of his son's birth. None of the great artists uh, were invited to sculpt or paint or draw the manger. Instead, God invited a bunch of shepherds. I really like God's style. See, when they get to the manger and see the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, they soak it all in. Now, they're not going to be able to stay until the wise men arrive. They've got to get back to work. Now, you know, I'm not a poet or a songwriter, and I stopped a long time ago trying to take a picture to capture the moment. I just have learned to gaze at it, literally just, just let it just soak into me so that when I try to tell someone what I saw, I, I may not be able to describe it in its fullest, but they can see in both my face and, and just in my whole way of presenting it that it was a life-changing experience. Imagine how the shepherds tell the story. It would be earthy and real, simple language, maybe even a few words not normally spoken in church. Wide-eyed amazement at the birth of a baby, which is rather surprising considering they'd witnessed the birth of hundreds, if not thousands, of baby sheep. The people who hear them know the story is real. They can see it in their faces. They can see that it has changed the life of these shepherds. Now what makes it real is not necessarily that they were there and saw and smelled and maybe even held the baby Jesus. That's only a small part of what makes something real. See, what made it real was they understood this was their Savior. Not proprietary or exclusive, but, but personal and intimate. I was reading an outline on how to conduct a survey to start a new church, establishing demographics, community needs, resources. And the author was very clear. He said, you know, stick to the single-family homes with newer cars in the driveway and toys in the yard. Look for well-kept lawns and landscaping. Now, he never mentioned surveying people who lived under the bridges or families on the street corner with the sign that says, anything helps, or the eight day laborers who share a single one-bedroom apartment, so eight of them in such a tiny space. And I know why he didn't say to survey them. They're not the preferred demographic when you want to start a church. Neither are shepherds. And yet God chose them. 
And maybe today, if, if God was going to have his son born into our world, we'd have to stop and think, who would it be that God would invite to be the first to experience and tell the story of their Savior's birth? It strikes me as funny that the first people the shepherds tell the story to is Mary and Joseph. Hey, you're not going to believe this. A baby got born and it's our Savior. And Mary casually points to the manger and the baby and says, and they go, yeah, yeah, that's him. Can, can you believe it? The, these angels said that he's our Savior. The reason I know that they were good storytellers is the Bible also records that all who heard it were amazed. And it doesn't matter whether it was the story or how the shepherds were telling it or the whole babed and wrapped and swaddling cloth or, or, or the fact that angels were involved. It was an amazing story. And the story stuck with them. And, and maybe if it wasn't just hearing problems that St. John had it, when he was describing the angels singing like thunder, cascading water, and harps, maybe when the shepherds were telling the story, Maybe some of the people said, so that's what I heard the other night. It sounded like, well, cascading water or thunder or somebody playing the harp. And suddenly the two came together and they knew somebody was doing something amazing. Something else. Not only was everyone amazed, but Mary kept all these words and treasured them in her heart. She'd just given birth in a stable of all places, laid her baby in a feeding trough, and had shepherds show up excited because angels had told them that this was Jesus and, and that he was the Savior. The story told by the shepherds must have made sense to Mary. I'm also thinking that it gave her the chance to take a deep breath and um, some peace of mind. See, other than the visit to Elizabeth and John, where uh, John leapt in the womb when Mary arrived, there's nothing else written about her pregnancy. And if it was all calm and quiet, she might have begun to wonder if, if the visit from the angels were real, if what they said was true. I mean, if her pregnancy was like every other pregnancy, if Jesus' birth was like every other birth, how would she know? Because, you see, Mary needs a Savior, too. He's not just the Savior for everybody else. He's, he's also the Savior for Mary. The Bible tells the story after story about deeply flawed people whose lives make ours seem normal. People who regularly hurt other people or, or hurt themselves or were hurt by others. People who run away when God asks them to go somewhere they don't want to go like Nineveh or deny God at the worst possible time like when he's dying for the sins of the world on a cross outside Jerusalem or doubt God while you're walking on the water which could be a real mess unless you're a good swimmer or you get a little sassy when God shows up and asks you to do something like Moses, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. And then there's us. And all of our doubts and fears and anxieties and pains and problems and even the times we ran away. I made, I made a big deal out of God choosing to tell shepherds because of what shepherds are. But I'm wondering, am I, am I really any different? I mean, there are days when I smell just as bad as any shepherd. My wife will vouch for that. Other days where my manners are just as socially awkward. About the only thing I don't share in common is the ability to play an instrument, write songs. Into the deeply flawed and broken mix of people, God showed up in, of all places, a stable, very specifically a feeding trough. If it was made of wood, there would have been splinters. If it was made of stone, then there would have been bumps and crevices. Yeah, it still would have been uncomfortable even with a bed of hay. A manger that cradles and reveals a God who loves his flawed and broken people, so much so that he came to save them. A manger where the Savior entered our fragile humanity and as a result understands us, to be honest, better than we understand ourselves. 
On the first Christmas, God showed up as a baby, and if that wasn't surprisingly enough, he chose dirty, stinky shepherds to be the first to know. I mean, other than Mary and Joseph and the animals, of course. And if we see this story for what it is, God becoming a living, breathing promise of hope, well, it brings us hope. A hope that is not about us or, or what we've done or what we expect to do or what we want to do or what we think we need to do, but rather a hope that is all about God and who He is and what He has done and, by the way, what He's going to continue to do for us. The day after Christmas, the shepherds were back in the field watching over their flocks. Nothing had changed, but everything had changed. I mean, it was both the same. See, they were still shepherds. They still needed a bath. We're still chasing prodigal sheep, facing down wolves and other predators. But they knew God knew that they were unique and unreproducible miracles. And he'd sent them a savior. And it's the sent them a savior that, that made all the difference, intimate and personal. This is the hope we cling to by faith, even if it's with barely a tip of our fingernail that we're holding on with. Regardless of how tightly we are holding on, the reality of Jesus and the God-made flesh is that He's holding on to us, and that's what really matters. This is the story that God wants us to see and experience today. Now, now God's going to tell us the rest of the story through a wafer and a sip of wine in a few minutes, a part of the story that's still a few months away after we have Epiphany and, and Ash Wednesday and Lent and Palm Sunday. But for right now, for right now on Christmas Day, God has chosen to cradle his son not in an imperfect and flawed manger, but to cradle him inside of you. So that wherever you go, whatever is happening, you're not alone. You always have God with you. Emmanuel. And that brings us back to the songs of Christmas and the angels and the shepherds and all them that since have tried to put into words and music what Christmas is all about. St. John, in the 21st chapter of his gospel, said, There aren't enough words or books in the Bible to tell you everything Jesus did. But these things I've written down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Savior, and in Him you have eternal life. And so we recognize there is no perfect Christmas song, no perfect Christmas movie, no perfect Christmas book, none that can fully contain the promises and the hope that we have in the real Christmas of Jesus. But that shouldn't keep us from singing them. And unlike the malls and radio stations, we're only on the first day of Christmas. That, that means there's going to be a total of 12. And for the next few Sundays, make sure you're warmed up and ready to sing about your Savior because we're not going to put the Christmas songs away yet. And if you're having trouble singing, if you just don't have the heart or the soul or the voice, Ask a preschooler to sing with you. And then tell them you want them to sing as loud as they can. And, and I guarantee if you choose the right song, they will not disappoint you. And suddenly we might understand a little bit more about why John thought the angels sounded like thunder and cascading waters and harps. And maybe a preschooler singing at the top of their lungs about their Savior. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.